I know 8.30 came before 9 o'clock, it usually does, but I know you're awake by now, so good morning. Yes, I knew somebody was here. Before we read God's Word, I want to remind you what happens after this, okay? Uh, after this, we will have a, uh, an all-church Sunday school hour in here. Uh, we're calling it Equip, and we'll talk about more of that, about that when it happens. Next week, we will start all of our Equip groups during that middle hour. Today, we're going to all gather in here. And we'll hear more about what's going on for the next few months during that time. I encourage you to be present. Our scripture today comes from the book of Revelation in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for constantly leading us, teaching us, drawing us closer, helping us to know who we are in you and who you are in us, how you call us to live. Father, I pray that you would do that even this morning. Father, that you would open up our hearts and transform us by your amazing grace. Father, I pray for this one for me as I preach your word. Father, I pray that you would take this broken vessel and you will proclaim your good, life-changing, holy, inerrant, infallible word. Lord, change us. Pour out good, clean, living water for our thirsty souls. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Some of your football fans, some of you are not. Those of you that are not, I'm sorry. Um, I can help with that. Um, seriously, though, um, football sometimes, in all sports, they, they imitate life, and they tell the story of life at times, and such was the case yesterday. So this isn't as much a football story as, a, as it is a life story. Uh, Univers University of Texas, Longhorns, um, a couple of months ago, voted that they wanted to be a part of the Southeastern Football Conference, the SEC. And they were eager to be a part of that. They can't fully join it for a couple of years, but, but they've been really excited. They've been telling everyone how they're going to be a part of the SEC, and they're really proud of that. And they couldn't wait for their first game against an SEC opponent, which was yesterday, against lowly, unranked Arkansas. 
So number 15, Texas told their story far and wide about what they were going to do to lowly, unranked, neighboring Arkansas. And then the referee blew the whistle, the game began, and a different story was written. And by the time the final whistle blew, it was Arkansas 40 and mighty Texas 21. They told one version of a story as they were leaving Texas to travel to Arkansas. On the way back, they told a different story. We read in Scripture that pride goes before the fall, right? Uh, we know sometimes we don't see the truth until we stumble over it. Well, that's what happened with Texas yesterday with the Texas Longhorns. They, they stumbled over the truth of their own, their own faults. And lowly, unranked, neighboring Arkansas crushed them. I'm an SEC fan, so I took great pleasure in that. But there's an element of, of truth in there that, that applies to all of us. We all have one version of a story, and sometimes that's not God's version of the story, right? We miss it. Such was the case with Ephesus. If you had asked the church at Ephesus before the book of Revelation was published, they would have said, yes, we're doing things just awesome. We are great, we're an awesome, we're a powerful, we're a mighty church. And in fact, they were known as the strongest church of the first century. I mean, look at the pedigree of pastors they had had. They're planted by the apostle Paul. Paul spent three years with the church at Ephesus. He didn't spend that much time with anybody. If anyone was going to have a great story written, it would have been Ephesus, right? So then he, he trains up this young man in the faith, his son in the faith, a guy named Timothy, and he writes the book of 1 Timothy to this young pastor and 2 Timothy to this young pastor, the last letter he wrote. It's three years. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. The 20, he goes back, and, and it's to the church at Ephesus, to those elders that Timothy included, that he gathers prayer before he heads off to his death. Ephesus had it made. They had Paul for a planter. They had Timothy for a pastor. You know who their assistant pastor was? It was a guy named the Apostle John. You know who one of the, the matriarchs of the church was? A woman named Mary, the mother of Jesus. If anyone's going to be the strongest church of the first century, it would be Ephesus. If they're writing their own story, it had to be all good. So why is it that in, in this passage, in Revelation 2, Jesus says, unless you repent and do the things you did at first, I'm taking away your lampstand. Now, the lampstand was the, was the seal for them as a church. Jesus takes away the lampstand, and it's not that they cease to exist as an organization. They can still exist as an organization. They can even have their name on the door. First Church of Ephesus. But the glory of the Lord would have departed. The light of Jesus Christ would have been gone. They were doing something that was so great. What is it that would cause Jesus to look at them and say, unless you repent, you will be no more? That's what this passage teaches us. The first thing he gives them is a well done church at Ephesus. Well done. Now, when this, when this letter is written, it's about 95 A.D., uh, it's written through the Apostle John. Jesus 
Uh, it's a book, not really a letter. Jesus uh, preaches the, or gives the gospel to the apostle John through a vision while John is exiled to the island of Patmos. And John writes this down, 95 AD. The church would have been planted between 52 and 55 AD. So the church is about 40, 43 years old, okay? He writes the, the, the book of Ephesus around 62 AD. He writes First and Second Timothy in 62 and 64 AD. So Paul had, had been in contact with the church at Ephesus, and then Jesus comes in uh, 42, 43 years later after it's planted, and he gives them these words. First thing he tells them is, well done, well done. I know the things you've been doing, well done. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but attested those who call themselves apostles, but they're not. You found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, he says it again. You're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Isn't that great stuff to hear from Jesus? Don't you want to hear that? I want to hear that, especially when times are tough and the church is under attack. To hear those kind of words, wow, 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 that's humbling stuff to hear from Jesus, the King of Kings. What was it that, that made bearing up and and patiently enduring so hard during those years. There have been two emperors uh, that were really, really nasty during those years. The first one was Nero. He was the emperor when the church was being planted. Nero uh, was, uh, was evil. Nero was as evil as any, any leader that you could find on the planet today and even more so. Uh, he, I can't tell you what he did in this context. But his slaughter, his torture, the ways in which he used and abused Christians. It was, it was unspeakable, unspeakable. And yet this church is planted during those years. You walk out in the streets of Ephesus and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't that you might lose your job you might lose your life and, and you might lose it in a very horrible, horrible, horrible way. And then years later, you come up against this guy in the 80s and the, and the 90s. We're not talking about the 1980s and 1990s, but the original 80s and 90s. Domitian, uh, emperor, the emperor of Rome at that point, he made Nero uh, look like child's play. He was unspeakably evil. He would douse Christians with tar and use them as lights for his parties as he set them on fire. It's against that backdrop that these Christians are standing strong in their faith. My friends, when I, when I say that we really don't know what persecution is, I mean, we really don't know what persecution is compared to what these early Christians experienced and compared to what many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing even in Afghanistan now or have been experiencing in China or Rwanda. They were standing strong in that and continued, continued to stand not just against um, a, a cult here, a cult here, but the evil that was in the culture. Be fair, most of their most of their their um, their standing against in this passage wasn't against the sin of the culture as a whole, but.
but it was against the sin that was evident in in a Christian sect, uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, a Christian group. Jesus still tells them, well done, and standing against that. What was so bad that this this group of Nicolaitans, they're following their leader, and and they were attempting to, uh, to bring in some teaching from the area and kind of water down Christianity a little bit. Well, a whole lot of it. See, Ephesus was the center of the, uh, the worship of Dinah, the goddess of fertility. Uh, Nero had a temple there. Domitian had a temple there. But the worship of, of the goddess of fertility, Dinah, her temple was so large that the others looked small. Her temple would have covered about nine football fields. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. In this In this temple, there was human sacrifice, there was human trafficking, sex trafficking. Uh, If you were going to be a part of business, successful business in the city of Ephesus, you would be involved in in some way in that temple. Uh, Whereas either businessmen and businesswomen might, might have a business lunch or go play golf somewhere. In Ephesus, they would have gone to the temple of Diana, of Dinah. If you were going to be a socialite, uh, one of the elite, one of the up-and-coming stars in the city, you would have been somehow involved in that. If you were to be a politician in that city, you would have been somehow involved in that. For these to stand firm against the teaching of the Nicolaitans would, means that they were standing firm against those that were saying, it's okay. You know, it's, it's okay if someone's involved in that. If they're going to be involved in the city, they've got to be involved in, in that sin. They've got to, they, they, we've got to give them, cut them some slack. It's okay to water that down and, and let someone be involved in the worship of the goddess of fertility, Dinah. So they're watering down Christianity and taking away the holiness and the truth that is found therein. Jesus says to him, well done. Well done. Truth, truth does matter. Well done. But, but if you stand against the truth and you do so without the love that is ours through Jesus Christ, then we get a rebuke. So as strong as, as his well done was, there was also something that was greatly missing. They knew a lot of doctrine. They knew theology well. They would have known the part of the book that was written. They would have known it backwards and forwards. They were a group that taught well. But they didn't love well. They didn't love God, they didn't love each other, and they didn't at all love the people of the city of Ephesus. Knowledge is great. Knowledge is great, but knowledge can be an idol. Been there. Oh, I've been there. I found great identity and, and purpose in the gaining of knowledge. For me, gaining knowledge was fun. It was easy. Uh, if my uh, 
incredibly wise wife did not hold me back. I would get one degree after another, after another, after another. I would be a professional student, and I would have a blast at it. It would be fun for me. Thankfully, uh, I married someone wiser than myself. Knowledge can be an idol because as we read in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, it can puff us up. Paul writes there, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that that all of us possess knowledge. That knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Knowledge can be an idol. It It can be a counterfeit God. Tim Keller says this about such idols and counterfeit gods. He says, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God. He's the only one who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Knowledge alone does not do that. Even knowledge about God doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. There was a time in our in our country, in our history, when the only book someone might have in their home might be a Bible. And they would know it backwards and forwards, but that doesn't mean they knew God at all. The strongest church of the first century had forgotten their first love, and they had replaced him with counterfeit gods, religiously acceptable gods, but still counterfeit gods. This counterfeit God of knowledge was so great and so serious this is not a a small matter friends was so serious that jesus tells them i will remove your lampstand unless you repent the passage opens up with jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand and those are the seven angels of the seven churches that are here in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And it says he's walking amongst the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands have their, their candles. They have a light coming from them. Those seven lampstands are the seven churches. And Jesus is telling the church here at Ephesus, I'm going to take yours away. The charge was that you forgot your first love. The way he puts it in, in verse Verse 4, he says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Abandoned it. It wasn't just that they didn't pay much attention to love. They, they, had, they had done away with it. It was gone. They had abandoned the love they had at first. They loved being right, and they had become very adept at uh, arguing, debating with false prophets But they didn't love God, and they didn't love his people, and they didn't love the people that created in his image that were not yet his people. You know, the reality is that this isn't just a struggle for the church at Ephesus. There's times in my life when it's a struggle for me, when I love me far more than I love God. I love me far more than I love you. I love me far more than I love my wife and my children. I can be a very selfish individual. And so can you. It it comes with Adam and Eve in the garden. When Eve isn't even satisfied to be one of two people that has an intimate relationship with the king of kings and wants to be her own God. 
She loved herself more than she loved God the Father more than she loved Adam. It's not a new thing, and we're all guilty of that. This letter is written not to individuals, but to the church as a whole, the church at Ephesus. But a church is made up of individuals. And so as individuals go, so goes the church. This church had patiently endured for 40 years in a very hostile place. They stood against false teachers, but they did not love. They needed a love for God, but they also needed a love uh, for God, from God, that resulted in a love for each other. We love, we know from 1 John, because he first loved us. He tells them not just to love, but to do the things they did at first. In verse 5, he said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do. Do the works you did at first. So remember, repent and do. Remember, repent and do. Love acts. Love always acts. Love is not a passive word. It's, it's an active. Love has action attached to it, right? So he says, repent. Remember. Remember who I am. Remember the love you had at first. Remember the love I gave to you. Remember the mercy and grace that I poured out on you. Remember that. Remember what Ephesus was like in the early days and the repentance of not being there again, and then do the things you did at first. So where was Ephesus in the early days? We know from Acts chapter 19 that the church grew rapidly. Paul was there for three years, remember, and, and had such an influence and an impact on the city in Ephesus that riots broke out. There was a, a, a guild, a union called the Silversmiths. Uh, the, the silversmiths were beginning to lose business because they were making silver idols, silver statues to this goddess of fertility, Dinah. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ was lived out, preached out, proclaimed in the city of Ephesus, people were transformed. I love to see individuals, families, and entire cultures transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what was happening in the city of Ephesus. Everybody was being transformed and discovering the love and the purpose, the hope that they have only through Jesus Christ. And that was hurting all of the ones that were making money off of evil. And so they rose up. They rose up and they incited a riot against Paul and Timothy and the other leaders in the church at Ephesus and had them brought into the, the, um, the stadium, the amphitheater, which would have held 20 or 30,000 people. And, and, and Paul and Timothy and the gang are um, there on death's doorstep at that point. Well... City councilman intervenes and, and stops the, the riot, stops the bloodshed. But can you imagine a church having such an impact in a city? Can you imagine that? That a riot breaks out? That would be so cool. I remember when we first went to uh, Nkokonjero, Uganda, a village of about 30,000 people uh, south of Kampala, we planted a church there and went back for a few years and, and did some medical clinic work, started orphanage, uh, helped the church start other churches, uh, raised up deacons, officers, things like that. And so we established a church planting movement in Uganda. First time you go through there, there are witch doctors everywhere. Evil is everywhere. You can feel it in the air. You go back the next year, it's a little bit lower. You go back the next year and they're gone. They're gone. They're gone. I've seen what can happen when the gospel of Jesus Christ is so faithfully proclaimed 
Not just arguing against the sin in, the, in, the, in, in other Christians. Not just debating with other Christian sects. That's good. He says that's good. Well done. Keep doing that. But, 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 what happens when the church so radically loves the others in their city that people want to know Jesus and the whole city is transformed? That's what had happened at Ephesus. So when Jesus is telling them, remember... Remember what you did at first? Remember those days? Go back there and love me, love each other, and love the people of Ephesus the way you did at first, and watch what I do. And if you don't, I'm going to take away the lampstand. Jesus isn't giving them a middle ground here. They were strong in theology, but they were, they were weak in love. Listen, to love to love people that are like you is hard. To love people that are not like you is very hard. Uh, it, love, is, love is active. Love isn't a, a sweet, sappy feeling. The feeling's great, but that's, that's the result. Love is action. And to love somebody means that you're vulnerable. It can be hard. It can be scary. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. This applies to people and to churches. It applies to all of us. My friends, churches have a life cycle, and so it was with Ephesus. If you can imagine a, a bell curve, a bell curve is a curve kind of like this. Churches are born, uh, usually planted, not splanted. A, a splant is different than a plant. You know what a splant is? It's when some people get upset and they go plant another church. It's really a split, a church split, but they call it a plant because it makes them feel better about what they did. It's, it's a splant. Uh, church splants are not healthy things. So churches are planted, though. The church at Ephesus had planted several other churches, such as Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, uh, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, the other churches in the book of Revelation. They had planted those. Churches have a life cycle. They're born here, and then they begin to grow when they're climbing up the front side of this, this bell curve. And as they're climbing up, uh, they're spending probably 80, 90% of their energy looking outward into the community of Ephesus or Annapolis. They're looking outward. They're still spending 10, 20% of their energy looking inward, okay, uh, discipling those that are already believers, raising up the church, equipping the church for the works of ministry. That's going on. But the whole lot of what they do is looking outward, and so the church continues to grow. But at some point, a church begins to plateau, usually around seven or eight years. It begins to plateau. As it's plateauing, what's happening is that they're spending more of their time and energy uh, inside. They've gone from spending 20% inside to spending like 60 or 70% of their time inside which means they're not looking outward that much at all. They might give money far afield, but they're not looking outward in their community around them. So the church isn't growing. The church begins to plateau. And then the church on the backside of the bell curve begins to do what we call decline. All churches have a bell curve. They can stop at the plateau and begin to go up again, or 
they cannot uh, not approach that, that struggle, not acknowledge that it's there, and hit the decline. The decline happens when uh, a church is spending only about 10% of its energy time looking outward and 80 or 90% inward. And uh, unless that's corrected, unless they begin to love the people that are outside the church, then that becomes 100% inward. And they go on down the decline phase and they hit the death phase, and that's, that's unrecoverable. Ephesus would have been in, in that decline phase. Did you know that 80% of churches in America are in plateau or decline? Did you know that? Only about 20% are, in the, are still in the growth phase. So what happens? We call that revitalization when you hit that plateau and you start to head down the decline. We, we call that revitalization. You say, do you want to live again? Do you want to be revital? Revital? So those are some of the words that we see here. Remember, repent, and, and, and re-love. Redo the things that you did at first, listen, if it can happen to a church with the pastoral staff of Paul and Timothy and John and a matriarch like Mary, it can happen to every single church the world over. And we're no different than that. It can happen to us as well. This church, as great as they were, had forgotten Jesus Christ. They had abandoned their love for Jesus Christ, their love for the people of Ephesus. And for this, Jesus rebukes them and calls them to repentance. He doesn't say quit doing, quit, he doesn't say quit arguing. He well, he doesn't say quit arguing in so, in so many words. He doesn't, he doesn't tell them to quit uh, standing against the Nicolaitans. He doesn't. Keep doing that. Well done. Well done. But he does say that unless you begin to love again, the lampstand's gone. How do we do that? Well, repent. Acknowledge that there's a struggle. Acknowledge that we're not loving God the way he's called us to. We're not loving each other the way he's called us to. We don't love the city around us the way he's called us to. So we, we remember and we repent, but we also rest. Rest in Jesus, but we also rest with Jesus. Let me ask you something. Uh, those of you that are, um, that are, that was not me, by the way. Somebody, something else up here. Um, let's imagine that, that you, you've got some... Uh, some guy or some girl, uh, you're, you're 18, 19 again, and, and you really want to, you know, be in a relationship with that individual, what are you going to do? You're going to spend time with them, aren't you? You're going to spend time with them. You're going to call them and say, hey. Bill's going to call Nancy and say, hey, Nancy, what you doing? Want to go for a walk? And she's going to say, no way. <laughs> no, they're going to spend time with each other. Knowing Bill and Nancy, she's going to work and Bill's going to watch. <laughs> They're going to spend time with each other, though, right? They're going to spend time talking with each other and getting to know each other. Not just when they're dating, but years later. Years later. So Sandy and I have been married 33 years, and every Thursday night is date night. Uh, don't touch it. It's date night. You know, unless it's an emergency or a pre-planned thing like a congregational meeting this Thursday night. <laughs> uh, it's going to be date night. How would you like to spend your date night at a congregational meeting? You're going to spend time with. So if you want to follow up with Jesus Christ again, you spend time with. If you want to, spend, you want to follow up with each other again, you spend time with each other. If you want to follow up with the people of Annapolis again, you spend time with them. Not just the ones that are like you. Not just the ones that are like you. But the ones that are not like you. You sit with them in humility. You just listen. 
You don't need to correct them. Just listen. Listen to their story and, and learn to love the people that are around you. Spend time with them. Does that mean the truth isn't important? Absolutely important. Jesus came with a Father full of grace and truth. John chapter 1. Truth without, without grace, though, is not God's truth. And grace without truth is not God's grace. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. Listen, life is hard, friends. Life is hard. You still persevere in it. In fact, he tells us here that we've got to conquer. And those that conquer, they're going to have the tree of life. The good news is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're already conquered. You're already conquering because you're in Jesus. He tells us in the world will have many trials, many troubles, many tribulations. But he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're overcoming, you're conquering, it's all settled in Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Who's going to write our history? Who's going to write our history? Will we be a church that's great at orthodoxy but without orthopraxy? Will we be a church that, that has all of our doctrine down pat, but will we not know how to love? Who's going to write our history? Here's one way to know. If EP disappeared tomorrow, would she be missed? If the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of Annapolis disappeared tomorrow, would she leave a hole? I don't mean a hole in your weekly schedule where you suddenly got to find someplace else to go worship on Sunday. I don't mean a hole in your nostalgia. Would you leave a hole in the city of Annapolis? Not as individuals, but would this church leave a hole in our city if she disappeared tomorrow? Would Annapolis even, even notice? My friends, our story isn't finished. Not at all. The one who writes the story calls us to be full of truth, full of grace. He calls us to let him write the next chapter. Will you pray for me? Pray with me. Father, we do need you to pray for us. Lord, I know that you intercede before the Father on our behalf. Jesus, how cool is that? Lord, that amazes me, amazes us. Father, we need that. Lord, we need you. We pray that you would help us to love you. Lord, it's hard. It's hard because we're selfish people. Lord, would you help us to love you well? Lord, would you love us? Lord, would you love others through us? Father, would you help us to lay down um, our, our own idols that get in the way of our relationship with you and our relationship with each other. Lord, help us to love each other well. Help us to love the city of Annapolis and Anne Arundel County well, sacrificially even. Father, I pray that as you continue to write the story of this church, Lord, that we would respond with grace and faith and a whole lot of love. In Jesus we pray, amen. Would you stand and worship with us?
Yeah, nah.